0: listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast, recorded here in Seoul on Tuesday, June 11th, 2019. And today I am joined by Daniel Wertz of the National Committee on North Korea in Washington, D.C., where he is the program manager in charge of uh, research and analysis, and also he helps NGOs to navigate through the field of uh, national and multinational sanctions. Especially those that are doing uh, aid work in North Korea, and he's the general editor of North Korea in the World dot org. Did I get all that right? That's correct. Fantastic. Thanks very much for joining us today, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about uh, sanctions. Obviously, sanctions. Uh, we have a lot of them on now. We have some UN. Security Council resolution sanctions on North Korea. We have some sanctions uh, levied from uh, Washington, D.C. directly on North Korea. We have some from South Korea. What would be the case scenario if things get worse, if for some reason the dialogue breaks down and more sanctions are levied or the existing sanctions are more strictly enforced?
1: Well, I'll just start with the usual caveat that my views expressed today are my own and uh, don't re- represent those of the National Committee on North Korea.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for mentioning that. I forgot to mention that, ladies and gentlemen, but that's a good point to start with. That's no
1: problem. So if, uh, if negotiations break down, we get back to escalation of pressure and threats from North Korea and the US, I think probably some of the first steps you might see are just more uh, sanctions designations issued by the U.S. Treasury Department and more frequent uh, sanctions designations. Before the Singapore summit, the U.S. had reportedly readied a tranche of several hundred new sanctions designations that was ready to go. The U.S. Uh, subsequently held off on issuing those designations, even though in the years since Singapore, there have been uh, occasional uh, new sanctions designations from the U.S. You'd probably see if things got worse. Uh, a lot more of them.
0: So a sanctions designation basically is when um, when the Treasury Department says this cannot be sent or sold or imported or uh, transferred into North Korea or out of North Korea.
1: A sanctions designation is on an individual or a business. Ah. And it basically says that any assets belonging to this entity uh, in the United States will be frozen. In the case of individuals, they'll be banned from travel to the United States and other businesses, entities, if they are doing any kind of business with the specially designated national uh, who's been sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department, they themselves will also be at risk of being sanctioned by the U.S.
0: And can individual items, uh, specific uh, products, also be designated as sanctioned items or is it uh, generally done... um Company by company, individual by individual.
1: Yeah, it's individual by individual, the way that the Treasury's uh, specially designated nationalist works. Uh, It's the UN that, um, through its Security Council resolutions, uh, identifies specific items Mm. that are prohibited for export to or import uh, into North Korea uh, at the international level. And the US uh, also, through its North Korea sanctions regulations, has a quite extensive list of the type of business activities related to North Korea that can uh, cause a business to be sanctioned as a specially designated national by the Treasury Department. And that list of uh, activities that can potentially trigger sanctions is quite extensive.
0: Okay, now you mentioned that uh, since uh, around the time of the, just before the Singapore summit, that there was a tranche of sanctions prepared but not actually So the U.S. has these kind of in its back pocket. Is that right?
1: Uh, That seems to be the case. Yeah. And there's certainly, if you look at the recent Pyongyang International Trade Fair, a lot of Chinese businesses that are doing business and violating sanctions with North Korea pretty openly. And if the Treasury Department wanted to find uh, some subjects for potential sanctions designations, uh, I don't think they'd have a lot of difficulty in doing so.
0: Okay so it's, so basically the Treasury Department can decide by itself that uh, to to impose these new sanctions or does it need an act of Congress or does it need a an executive order from the president how does that work
1: It's the Treasury Department that imposes the sanctions on on individuals that violate US sanctions law but of course you know this is something that goes through a multi departmental process in the US government for any major sanctions uh, designations, the White House would have to sign off, uh, State Department, other executive branch agencies would all have to weigh in in some fashion. And, you know, we actually saw a few months ago a kind of breakdown in this process, uh, a bit of miscommunication, perhaps, where the- Within the
0: U.S. government. Within
1: the U.S. government, uh, where the Treasury Department issued a couple of new sanctions on uh, shipping companies mm. uh, doing business with North Korea. And the next day, President Trump went on Twitter and announced that new North Korea sanctions uh, would be rescinded or would not be issued. Okay.
0: So if things get worse, then, so if the uh, if, if talks break down, uh, there's more sanctions in the back pocket, They can be imposed. Is there a likelihood of, uh, of increased sanctions um, or uh, stronger enforcement from the UN side of things?
1: Well, that's, of course, dependent on... Whether or not there is a consensus at the UN Security Council on the need for stronger sanctions, and that means that China and Russia, among other parties, would have to agree that new sanctions are warranted. North Korea has put a lot of political capital in the past year into trying to repair its relations with Beijing and Moscow. But of course, a major new provocation, new nuclear tests, long-range missile tests uh, could Uh, cause those relationships to deteriorate once again. The UN sanctions regime, it's already pretty extensive, but there's uh, certainly more that could be added to it. There could be restrictions on North Korea's imports of crude oil, for example, which is basically capped at the same level that it's been at for the past several years. There could be restrictions on tourism to North Korea, which is one uh, money-earning activity for North Korea that's currently not explicitly sanctioned. Uh, I think in general, though, what's really important for the sanctions regime isn't just adding to what exists on paper, but uh, strengthening how it is enforced.
0: Mm, Okay. Within the United Nations Security Council, is it the Security Council itself that uh, imposes or lifts sanctions, or is it a committee of the Security Council?
1: So there's a Security Council Sanctions Committee, the so-called 1718 Sanctions Committee, Uh, which has authority to waive sanctions on a case-by-case basis. Uh, So for humanitarian organizations seeking to work in North Korea that have to bring some prohibited items into the country, they would get a waiver from this committee for uh, inter-Korean sports exchanges related to the Olympics. They required a few waivers from the sanctions committee. But to change the UN sanctions regime as a whole... Uh, that requires an act of the Security Council.
0: Now, uh, that latter act that you mentioned to uh, to change or to add new sanctions, does that require a unanimous vote, or is it a majority, or how does that work?
1: So that requires unanimity among the five permanent members mm-hmm. of the Security Council. The non-permanent members doesn't require unanimity among them, but as far as I can recall, all the past... UN Security Council resolutions have passed unanimously. If China and Russia's been on board, then other countries on the Security Council have inevitably signed off as well.
0: And within the 1718 Committee for Sanctions Waivers, does that also require a unanimous vote?
1: Uh, It does. So the 1718 Committee operates by consensus, and its membership basically mirrors that of the UN Security Council.
0: All right. Okay. Now, what if the If the situation gets better, so if uh, the US and North Korea reach some kind of a deal, uh, how would sanctions actually be lifted and and how would that affect the ability of North Korea to engage in trade and business with the outside world?
1: So it would be a very complicated process if sanctions started to be lifted. Even if North Korea made very dramatic progress on denuclearization, then it would be still a, a difficult thing to just lift the sanctions regime Overnight, But you could start to pare back uh, the UN resolutions first, either by issuing waivers for certain activities, like perhaps inter-Korean cooperation. You could perhaps uh, suspend or uh, change some of the restrictions related to North Korean commercial imports or exports, for example, increasing uh, North Korea's uh, – the amount of refined petroleum that they can import – And those kind of sanctions can be snapped back relatively easily if there's the right mechanism in place. For U.S. sanctions, it's a bit more complicated. Um, U.S. sanctions law basically states that U.S. sanctions, including secondary sanctions in some cases, can only be suspended if North Korea has made progress not only on its nuclear program, but also on other issues that Congress cares about, such as human rights, mm. illicit activities, etc. So they're specifically tied in,
0: in law to uh, lifting of sanctions by the U.S., is that right?
1: They are. And there is a little bit of, of leeway in the relevant law. The White House uh, simply has to declare to Congress that North Korea has made, quote, progress on those issues. Mm. The law doesn't specify what progress might necessarily entail, So if the executive branch were to really try to lift sanctions, they might have a little bit of wiggle room. But if they were to declare that North Korea had made progress, for example, on human rights issues when that is not actually the case, that could certainly lead to some pushback at the very least from Congress.
0: You said that... um... Yeah, it's a long and complicated process. and It would be hard to uh, to change things overnight and to enable North Korea overnight to uh, to interact with the outside world in terms of trade and uh, and economic development. Well, how long a time frame do you think that could take? Would that be five, ten years?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I think that a lot of the restrictions to North Korea's uh, normal relations with uh, the international economy, a lot of them aren't even directly related to sanctions. There are a lot of important non-sanctions barriers in place. Uh, North Korea is, for example, not a member of any international financial institutions. It's not not a member of the IMF, World Bank, or WTO. And that prevents North Korea from potentially being able to integrate into the global economy. Mm. In the case of the U.S., North Korea is one of two countries, along with Cuba That are subject to what are called column two tariffs, uh, meaning that even if the U.S. dropped all of its North Korea sanctions, North Korean imports in the U.S. would become prohibitively expensive to the point where they're just not competitive. So if there was a, you know, if North Korea completely denuclearized, if U.N. and U.S. sanctions were completely lifted, there would still be a lot of uh, complex barriers in place to North Korea's integration with the global economy.
0: As you point out, it's not part of the um, uh, the World Bank uh, or, or the IMF. What about that, um, that relatively recent Asia Development Bank that China set up? I can the exact name of it, but is North Korea interacting with that in any way that we know
1: of? They've, um, I think, had some low-level interaction with that mechanism, but they're not a member. Mm. Uh, because China is the uh, major uh, country behind that institution. But it's
0: also uh, the major lifeline behind the North Korean economy, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It
1: might, it might be easier uh, for North Korea to join China's equivalent of the Asian Development Bank mm. than. Right. Well, do you yeah. remember the name of that? Thing? I, Asia Infrastructure and Investment Bank. There you That's go. That's it.
0: OK, AIIB.
1: It would be potentially possible for North Korea to join the AIIB down the line Mm. uh, even if it's blocked from joining other international financial institutions i suspect that the north koreans though would want to diversify Mm. their uh, foreign economic relationships and get beyond china if they were to open their economy and start integrating uh with the rest of the world if they were to take dramatic actions to get rid of sanctions So they probably would want to get beyond just interacting with the AIIB if they possibly could.
0: Are there any uh, judicial decisions that would hamper North Korea's uh, involvement with, uh, what, trade with America?
1: Yes, there are. So there have been a number of court cases brought against North Korea by individual U.S. citizens, ranging from the former crew of the USS Pueblo.
0: That was in 1968?
1: Yes. The lawsuit was a little more recent, though. Mm. Uh, to the family of Otto Warmbier, uh, so there is over a billion dollars in U.S. court judgments uh, against North Korea, and if U.S. North Korea economic ties would be normalized, you know that's one issue that would have to be dealt with in some fashion or another, and it wouldn't be necessarily easy uh, to just put aside these court judgments since they're decided by the judicial branch, which is of course independent in the U.S. system of government and are brought by individuals who I think would certainly work hard to try to press their claims against North Korea if they had the opportunity to do so.
0: Now, But those claims or those judgments are against the North Korean state, aren't they? So if some stage in the future, a North Korean private company were to uh, try and do trade with America, would that judgment hamper its uh, operations also?
1: That's a good question. I think it depends on what exactly a North Korean private company means. Mm-hmm. In the North Korean context, there are certainly a lot of state-owned enterprises yeah. that function on kind of pseudo-market basis um, and act in the North Korean context kind of as private companies in a, in a legal sense or not. If uh, private North Korean companies in a post-reform North Korea were to enter the U.S. market, they might have some insulation against these kind of court judgments. But if it's the North Korean government that all of a sudden has assets in the United States, then that could be a a complicating factor.
0: Now, what about if if things all just stay the same and we keep muddling through for the next five to ten years as we have the last decade or so uh, and sanctions remain as they are at current levels?
1: Yeah, I think we'd see certainly more of the same. We'd see um, Chinese businesses continue to smuggle goods into North Korea. And out of North Korea, we'd see any international businesses that try to comply with sanctions and do everything above board, basically blocked from doing business uh, in North Korea. There would be a little bit of wiggle room under the current UN and international sanctions regime and how it's enforced uh for things like greater humanitarian assistance into North Korea. Right, cuz
0: we always hear that that un- whatever the sanctions are that humanitarian work is not supposed to be a target of sanctions, right?
1: Yeah, that's the idea, but it's that hasn't always been the case in practice. Yeah. So the uh the provisions in UN Security Council Resolution 2397 which was adopted in December of 2017, that banned uh, the export of metals, uh, machinery, vehicles, electrical equipment to North Korea. Mm. And in practice, those categories of goods were defined so widely as to include a lot of goods that humanitarian organizations uh, typically bring into North Korea for their projects. So those humanitarian organizations to bring in goods uh, you know, necessary to build up capacities at hospitals or to provide clean water or you know, things like agricultural equipment, those all require waivers from the UN 1718 Sanctions Committee. And although starting earlier this year, the Sanctions Committee has finally started approving those waivers on a routine basis, it's still an enormously... Complicated and time-consuming process uh, to get through them, mm. and even with those waivers in place, a lot of banks uh, simply don't want anything to do with NGOs that right. are operating in North Korea.
0: Right, so it's not just the movement of goods; it's it's the movement of payments or money into North Korea that uh, to to get any of the job done that that uh, impeded, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's and it's not even. The flow of money into North Korea uh, for many Uh, NGOs. It's simply operating in North Korea and sending money, let's say, into China to pay for uh, humanitarian goods, you know, food or medicine, et cetera, that might be eventually exported to North Korea. That's become an increasingly uh, challenging problem for NGOs, Mm. which, you know, for years have not been able to send money directly into North Korea to pay for local uh, costs. And the UN agencies. Similarly, even though there are some carve-outs in the UN sanctions allowing them to, in theory, send money into North Korea to pay for local costs, in practice, uh, they haven't been able to do that.
0: Right. Is that because of the fear of, uh, of what they call secondary sanctions?
1: Yeah, it's, it's de-risking by the banks. They simply don't want anything to do with transactions related to North Korea, mm-hmm. even if those transactions are entirely illicit And above board, because it's a huge amount of risk that they're taking on uh, for very low profit margins. It's, you know, the NGOs and UN agencies operating in North Korea are not giving a lot of business to these banks.
0: And that's part of the the long term knock on effect of the Banco Delta Asia uh, uh, scandal, I, I suppose, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And that's been a strategy that the U.S. has increasingly pursued in recent years. Uh, going after international banks that do business Mm. with North Korean front companies and middlemen that don't do sufficient due diligence uh, to block North Korean access to the international financial system. And that's something that if talks between the U.S. and North Korea break down, Mm. I think you might see more aggressive actions on that front, uh, particularly U.S. uh, enforcement actions against major Chinese banks that have not uh, sufficiently enforced uh, sanctions on North Korea.
0: As it stands at the moment, um, with the sanctions as they are, are we seeing any uh, contraction or, or shrinkage of the North Korean economy?
1: If you look at some of the numbers that are available, it's it's something of a mystery. The exchange rate in North Korea has stayed basically This is the flat. North Korean
0: one to the U.S. dollar?
1: Uh, North Korean won to the U.S. dollar or to the Chinese RMB or mm-hmm. other foreign currencies. The black market exchange rate has been surprisingly stable. Food prices have been stable. Uh, fuel prices jumped up a bit in 2017, but have then kind of plateaued. Mm. Chinese trade statistics tell a different story. Uh, we see a lot of North Korean imports of goods that are not sanctioned continuing in the Chinese trade statistics. But the reported exports have dropped to nearly zero. Of course, we know that's not the case in practice. The North Koreans are still getting around those trade sanctions in some ways. But you know the question is, are they bleeding out US dollars? Are they not able to make as much hard currency as they once were to pay for their imports to facilitate what's become a, a dollarized domestic economy? And I th- suspect that North Korea may have adopted what you might consider austerity policies.
0: Mm. So belt tightening measures for for the citizens?
1: Yes. So having a very tight monetary policy in order to keep the market exchange rate stable, uh, taking other actions where people's wages, if they work in industries where they get wages instead of rations, are probably being reduced. There is less uh, money around for de facto private investment. And certainly we've seen that rations that go through the public distribution system to North Korean workers at state-owned enterprises and government officials, those have been cut according to the World Food Program and FAO. Mm.
0: But no, it's only a few years ago. I I can't remember exactly when, but I seem to remember in the last few years that uh, Kim Jong-un gave a speech in which he said there'll be no more belt tightening. That, you know, people don't need to, to live under austerity anymore.
1: Yeah. Uh, in April of last year, in a major policy speech, Kim Jong-un basically said that the byungjin policy mm. of simultaneous development of nuclear weapons in the economy is over, that it's essentially an economy first policy from here on out.
0: Right. And here well, we are barely a year later.
1: Yeah. And the economy, I can't imagine, has improved in that time. It mm. hasn't collapsed, certainly. But, you know, we're far from, you know, North Korea transforming into the kind of socialist paradise that Kim Jong-un, I think, wants it to be.
0: Now, I imagine that if sanctions stay the same, that that kind of economic growth would be extremely difficult, if not impossible.
1: Yeah, it would be very, very challenging, even with uh, half-hearted sanctions enforcement along the Chinese-North Korean border for North Korea to resume the kind of uh, decent levels of growth that we saw in the period from circa 2009 through 2016 when China-North Korea trade really boomed. If sanctions aren't fully enforced, I think that'll perhaps prevent the worst from happening to the North Korean economy. It won't implode, but the chances for growth in that kind of environment are, are pretty low.
0: And if the sanctions regime were to become stricter and enforce- enforcement were to become more regular, uh, are you saying that that could lead to an implosion of the North Korean economy?
1: I think it could lead to a lot of pain within the North Korean economy, which is not necessarily to say that strongly enforced sanctions will lead North Korea to entirely accede to US and international demands at the negotiating table. I think this is a regime that has clearly shown that it is willing to Withstand a lot of pain, or rather, to have its people withstand a lot of pain uh, in order for its core political objectives to, to remain in place. I think that being said, if you compare the North Korean economy of the 1990s to today, the uh, average North Korean is probably more resilient in some ways, less dependent on the state for largesse. There are better mar- uh, coping mechanisms in place. So I think the prospects for a repeat of a total collapse of the North Korean economy as we saw in the 1990s is not not that great.
0: So um you you've very um correctly brought it back to the intentions of the sanctions which is to uh uh to bring North Korea towards uh, denuclearization. What is in your opinion the best way then to achieve you know, the, the aims of the global community, which is to bring North Korea to denuclearization. how How can sanctions be best used to achieve that?
1: Well, I think sanctions really need to be integrated into a cohesive diplomatic strategy, combining negotiations, sanctions, deterrence, other forms of pressure and inducement. And I think that the U.S., in talks with North Korea, should be willing to be creative with offering different forms of uh, partial sanctions relief to North Korea in return for uh, significant progress on the North Korean side toward denuclearization. If North Korea were, for example, willing to suspend fissile material production, not only at Yongbyon, but at other nuclear sites as well, I think that would be worth certainly paring back the UN sanctions regime In some ways in order to achieve that. And of course, I think that uh, suspension of sanctions should be implemented in a way where sanctions can be reimposed if North Korea doesn't live up to its obligations.
0: Okay, well, what about um, at the... Or just after the Hanoi summit earlier this year, um, there was that famous midnight press conference given by North Korea's foreign minister, Ri Yong-ho, and a couple of his off-siders, in which he basically, at least it seemed to me, he's saying almost what you're saying, which is that uh, we're willing to shut down uh, Yongbyon in exchange for uh, some limited sanctions relief, basically just bringing it back to 2015 levels. Is that more or less in agreement with what you were saying?
1: I think the agreement that the North Koreans offered at Hanoi was giving too little and asking for too much. I think from the U.S. perspective, only getting uh, action at Yongbyon and not at some of their other fissile material sites was uh, insufficient. And rolling back the past five U.N. Security Council resolutions in there entirely was a a very high price to pay for that. Uh, That being said, if you take the North Korean offer at Hanoi as an opening bid, mm. rather than as a final offer, uh, it might be a reasonable place to start from uh, for future negotiations, and we can see how far they might be willing to bargain down from that position.
0: You've had a chance, uh, Daniel, uh, to uh, look at um, some of the photographs that MK Pro took at the April. Sorry, the May. Uh, spring trade fair that happened in Pyongyang uh, a couple of weeks ago. What did you see from those photographs uh, that's relevant to uh, the the sanctions work that you've been doing?
1: I think those photographs clearly indicated that sanctions are not being fully enforced, uh, particularly on the Chinese side, but also by uh, businesses operating out of other countries. And it showed that, surprisingly enough, uh, you know, foreign businesses uh, that are operating in North Korea don't seem to have too much concern about the risk of being caught um, by going to the foreign trade fair. They were essentially operating in the open, and this is you know a trade fair that uh, certainly the UN panel of experts and almost certainly the U.S. Treasury Department look at very closely and scrutinize the list of businesses that are appearing there.
0: We just talked a moment ago about uh, how Kim Jong-un said in his April policy speech last year that uh, it's economy first all the way now. And uh, just a, a couple of months after his speech last year in April, of course, at the first summit between President Trump and, and Chairman Kim, uh, President Trump showed that video uh, in Singapore, uh, which I think our listeners can find on the, on YouTube, uh, the one with the white horses running through the ocean and uh, showing, you know, wealth and affluence, um, and hinting at uh, the wonderful future economic development that could take place in North Korea, uh, and he's since that showing at the video, he's hinted at it several times, saying that North Korea's got a great future, and yet this carrot waving doesn't seem to have had any no- uh, noticeable impact on uh, North Koreans, uh, North Korea's stance or actions. And why do you think that could be?
1: I think that fundamentally, the North Koreans are still reluctant to denuclearize and especially to denuclearize on the schedule that the United States is asking, which is to say uh, to completely abandon their nuclear program before there's any sanctions relief at from the U.S. or at the U.N. level. Uh, I think there's probably some wariness within North Korea as well about opening up their economy to the world, about having a more prosperous kind of economy that's that's open, that follows the path of Chinese and Vietnamese reforms, because having that kind of opening economy requires a level of political openness that North Korea has hitherto been uh, very, very uncomfortable with countenancing. And even though we've seen you know, de facto uh, reforms in how the North Korean... Economy operates over the past few years. We've seen markets and the role of markets becoming much more prominent. North Korea still hasn't really changed the du jour economic policies that it has in place. Private property, uh, for example, is still really minimized within how the economy works on paper. It's still notionally a command economy. And there's a question how far. Kim Jong-un might be willing to go in opening up the economy and undertaking some policies that would make it better off and more prosperous. And I think it's it's an open question what his long-term calculus on those issues might be.
0: So do you think that he himself is uh, uh, is concerned that real economic reform in North Korea could destabilize the system and jeopardize his own rule over that system?
1: I think that's exactly the the issue for him.
0: And is he, do you think he's correct? Do you think that real economic reform could destabilize the whole thing and bring it down?
1: Real economic reform could certainly have major implications for the political system in North Korea. It would be possible, uh, perhaps, if economic reform is carried out well, uh, for, North, for Kim Jong-un to change the basis of his legitimacy from having a purely ideological and, and military-based legitimacy to one that's based on economic growth and delivering on prosperity for his people. I think it's also possible, as you know, China these days is certainly demonstrating, for a country to have an extremely strong authoritarian police state in place uh, while also implementing market-based economies, uh, market-based economics. Yep. But for for Kim Jong-un to make that transition— uh, I think it, especially at the outset, entails significant risk. Uh,
0: there are some, for example, uh, um, one of the uh, Korea Risk Group director uh, andre Lankov, who, who say that uh, a, a major stumbling block preventing uh, North Korea from developing in the same way as China uh, is that there is always this other Korea against which it's being, you know, uh, measured by its people. So uh, China, the the, the one point whatever billion people of China didn't have uh, an equally sized South China to compare themselves against, uh, Taiwan obviously being much too small. Uh, But North Korea, the people there would look to, uh, you know, the the TV dramas and the lifestyles of South Korea and say, well, you know, if, if we're going to become a poorer version of South Korea, why not just, you know, become part of South Korea, perhaps?
1: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think that's part of the logic behind the sunshine policy pursued by past South Korean administrations and the pro-engagement uh, policies of the of the present South Korean administration. I think that progressive South Korean governments have wanted to demonstrate to North Korea that they can engage in this path of reform and opening and that South Korea will be a partner in that process rather than a threat. But of course, uh, the dynamics that you articulate are, are going to remain in place. South <laughs> yeah. Korea is going to remain a wealthy, open, and prosperous society, I hope, for a long time.
0: Mm. Well, certainly. So do I, given that I live here. So is it then perhaps in in Kim Jong-un's best interest to just really try to keep things, both change and reform, as minimal as possible, to just kind of hold a tight hand on the, keep a tight hand on the reins and try to muddle through without uh, giving up too much?
1: I think there's certainly incentives for Kim Jong-un to be very cautious with any kind of economic reform, as he and certainly his father and grandfather have been. But at the same time, North Korea society is, of course, opening up gradually to the rest of the world. I think there's a realization within an increasingly broad and important part of the North Korean population of how far North Korea has fallen behind economically, as well as technologically. And I don't think that Kim Jong-un wants to lead a country where the elites and people who are relatively elite are all perfectly aware of how backward uh, the economy and society are compared to their neighbor's. Hmm.
0: Although I suppose the argument could be made that it doesn't matter if they're aware of that backwardness, as long as they continue to realize that uh, maintaining that separateness is in their own best interests, right? I mean, it, uh, it, you could say that it's precisely those elites who would stand the most to lose in a in a system change or a uh, or a unification of North Korea with South Korea. Uh,
1: for some elites, particularly those who are able to get wealthy through their ties to the regime, I think they're. They have reason to be happy with the system the way it is if they've uh, prospered from it. But for the broader population, the population that likes to uh, consume South Korean dramas and K-pop and has an interest in the outside world, I think that there is certainly going to be an interest in in changing and reforming that system. Perhaps the kind of you know cold calculation of. Rational best interest is going to be limited to a handful of of elites who are able to to coldly make that calculation.
0: Do you see any willingness in the U.S. in the current U.S. administration or in the uh, in the Congress to uh, try to use sanctions and other tools as a way of uh, bringing about you know, regime change uh, in North Korea?
1: Yeah, I think there are certainly uh, hardliners in Washington who don't take the negotiation process seriously, who have uh, total distrust of North Korea's intentions at the negotiating table and have called for regime change, and in some cases have called for U.S. military action to facilitate regime change. Uh, John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, only a few months before his appointment, he wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal which seemed to call for military action, preventative military action against North Korea. And it's hard to believe that he's changed his views that mm. much in the time since he's been in office.
0: Yes, although he was quoted in a, in a recent uh, uh, long article I read, I can't remember, it was either the New Yorker magazine or the Atlantic, uh, in, in which he was quoted to have said, uh, I do policy, you do war. So he's not you know, he doesn't consider himself a war man because he just does policy. It's a way of divorcing yourself from the consequence, I suppose. Yeah.
1: Well, I think um, Bolton has a reputation as a very canny, bureaucratic infighter, someone who's able to get his way more often than not on internal administration battles. And even though he's serving a president who's very publicly committed to diplomacy with North Korea and to building a, a personal relationship, however unlikely, mm. with Kim Jong un. I think uh Bolton's views likely remain his views. He will likely provide advice and take action within the administration. Uh, that's in line with his views.
0: Now, you mentioned also, well, I mentioned at the start when I inter- introduced you, that you help NGOs and aid agencies navigate through the uh, the path of various sanctions uh, around North Korea. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How do you do it?
1: It's been extremely challenging for aid agencies operating in North Korea, particularly U.S. agencies. Mm. For a U.S. NGO, there's, there's a lot of traps to run through. You've got to start off getting approval from the U.S. Treasury Department. So to, is that step one? There's multiple steps. You can take them in whatever order you want. Ah, okay. So you need a Treasury Department license to be given permission to just form a partnership with a North Korean counterpart to basically have an MOU that says how aid will be dispersed, distributed, monitored, et cetera, Yeah. as well as to export non-U.S. origin goods other than food and medicine to North Korea. If an NGO is exporting U.S. origin goods then they'd need a license from the U.S. Commerce Department as well. To actually travel to North Korea, U.S. organization, or at least uh, members of that organization who travel using U.S. passports, need to get a special permit from the State Department, which is basically a one-time special passport valid for one trip to North Korea. And finally, those NGOs have to also get approval from the UN 1718 Sanctions Committee uh, for permission to export uh, any prohibited items, including metals, electrical equipment, etc., to North Korea. And then NGOs also have to deal with issues such as de-risking from banks and other private sector companies, even if they've complied with all of those sanctions requirements. They still have to deal with Chinese customs, which frankly might not always care if uh, UN uh, sanctions waiver has been granted. So it's enormously challenging on, on multiple levels.
0: It sounds like a minefield.
1: Yeah. And for a period last year, a lot of these applications from US NGOs were being denied. There were several NGOs uh, that had their staff denied permits to travel to North Korea. Yeah, uh, Licenses from commerce or treasury weren't being granted. The US was blocking waiver applications at the UN 1718 Sanctions Committee. Uh, thankfully, the US uh, reversed course on those policies uh, around January of 2019 and began once again facilitating US and international humanitarian assistance to North Korea. But it remains, nonetheless, extremely challenging to do so.
0: Now, the National Committee on North Korea, uh, is that uh, affiliated with uh, Mercy Corps?
1: Yes, we were founded by Mercy Corps back in 2004 to be a humanitarian bridge between the United States and North Korea Mm -hmm. and to bring together the community of Americans who are involved with principled engagement with North Korea, uh, which includes humanitarian workers, uh, people who do track two dialogues, etc., And we remain part of Mercy Corps, even though uh, we have independent streams of funding and on a day-to-day basis, uh, our programming is distinct from the rest of Mercy Corps.
0: Mm. Uh, Just quickly for our listeners, what is Mercy Corps?
1: Uh, Mercy Corps is an international aid and development organization which operates in over 40 countries and is headquartered in Portland, Oregon, in the U.S.
0: And do they currently have uh, anybody stationed in uh, in North Korea?
1: We do not. Uh, Mercy Corps was one of the first NGOs in the U.S. to really ring the alarm on the North Korean famine in the 1990s, was very closely involved with providing uh, food assistance and, and relief in North Korea during that period, and continued uh, providing humanitarian assistance uh, to North Korea in subsequent years. Uh, a few years ago, made the decision to suspend North Korea programming. Uh, but certainly, if circumstances are right in the future, that could potentially resume.
0: You've been working now at the National Committee on North Korea since 2011. Is that right?
1: Yes. It's, what keeps you going? I think North Korea is a fascinating country to study and extremely Challenging policy issues, their nuclear program, uh, human rights, humanitarian issues—extremely challenging policy issues to try to address. And it's uh, it's fascinating to to work in this field.
0: And what uh, can you share a little bit about what research you're working on right now or in the near
1: future? Uh, sure. So, in addition to my research related to sanctions. I have also been the lead editor and researcher for a site called North Korea in the which looks very closely at North Korea's foreign trade ties, foreign diplomatic relations, etc. Uh, we just a few months ago put out a new data set for that project, uh, looking at high level North Korean diplomatic delegations sent abroad uh, over the past two decades, found some interesting data points on that front. Uh, We also write a number of issue briefs, providing uh, concise but pretty detailed overviews of policy issues related to North Korea, uh, ranging from their nuclear program to bilateral relations with countries such as the U.S. or South Korea. And we do a lot of other events and programming around D.C. and in other parts of the U.S. occasionally as well.
0: Great, great. Any final thoughts to leave us with today, Daniel?
1: There is still perhaps a chance for a diplomatic process to move forward, even though it's it's been over a year mm. since the Singapore summit. It's been really 18 months since the start of this process with the the Pyeongchang Olympics oh. uh, last year. But I suspect that there will be at least one last major attempt to uh, restart diplomacy. Uh, between the U.S. and North Korea before the next U.S. presidential election. Which is November next year, isn't it? Exactly. Right. And I think the timeline uh, for getting a deal with North Korea is pretty short because once it gets to be election season, once that's in full force, yeah. the politics of, of making a deal with North Korea get a lot more fraught.
0: Well, we saw that, didn't we, with the uh, the Bill Clinton administration, right? That there was talk much... Hopeful talk back in 2000 of him perhaps visiting Pyongyang and working out a deal with Kim Jong Il, uh, and then the the whole thing with the elections uh, just you know got got uh, well caught him up and uh, he didn't end up going
1: exactly. And the same could be said of South Korean presidents as well. Yeah. Uh, President Nam Hyun, for example, right, had his second inter-Korean summit when he was very much a lame duck, and Im Bak came in after him and basically nullified the results of that summit. So I think that's a lesson for U.S. and South Korean politicians. Don't wait until the last minute to strike a bargain with North Korea. And I think it's also a lesson for North Korea. Don't stonewall until the last minute to try to strike a bargain with a democratic country because making a deal with a lame duck president is very risky.
0: Yeah, uh, that seems like a good place to uh, to finish for today. Thank you very much for joining us today, Daniel Wirtz. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks, listeners, for uh, checking out this podcast. Don't forget to share it with your friends, colleagues, enemies, co- classmates, people across the road, etc. Uh, check out nknews.org as well as the uh, photos of the recent uh, April trade fair in Pyongyang at NK uh, Pro if you're a subscriber. And uh, check us again next time. Thank you. The costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Career Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.